Okay, folks. Hi, and welcome back to another special edition Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today, I have um, someone who's becoming a regular guest, I guess. Um, Alan Aragon. Welcome, mate. Thank you so much for having me on, Mark. Yeah, so... So you've been, I know you've been, you've been on with uh, Brad Schoenfeld. Um, I, um, I, I've had you on twice. Uh, uh, I've done so many of these podcasts now. I can't remember who's been on and when. Um, all of them. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. So um, today uh, it is a, a, a sort of a dedicated podcast to the series that um, is associated with the Epic Fitness Summit that's uh, taking place here in the UK in May, and I'll mention more about that at the end of the podcast, and I know that you're going to be uh, taking part in a very important um, or a very exciting debate um, with um, Gary Taubes, who um, has also been on this uh, on this podcast. We're, we're not really going to get too much into what you're going to um, debate about um, um, there's other things I wanted to get in with you, but if, could you just give us a just a quick synopsis about what the debate is about? But we don't have to actually go into any specifics. Yeah, the debate is essentially about why we get fat. I mean, this is something that actually Gary titled the debate himself. I mean, I, I was totally fine with this. Why we get fat. Um, is it excess calories or is it excess carbohydrate? And it's kind of an interesting loaded question. And so I think that loaded questions make really good uh, um, fodder for <laughs> discussion and debate. So that is what we're going to get into. And I've, I'm really looking forward to it because as far as I know, Gary is a decent and smart guy. He's sure. not somebody who is wearing earmuffs and uh, blinders to that tight of a degree as some other folks that you would run to run into on the internet mm-hmm. and elsewhere. So should be really fun. Should be a really great uh, discussion. Yeah, I think you you know you've raised a good point, and we've talked about this a few times on this podcast. Where you know it's okay to have a point of view, and the great thing about science is that ability to have different points of view different angles as long as when you have that debate um and i and i and i specifically i'm not using the word argument because sometimes these things come across as an argument on twitter or facebook or on the internet or whatever but that's different from from people who who have firm beliefs because they interpret the science or the the data in different ways and um um that isn't that often is not the case for, for many people when they get into topics, even if it is the same topic, whether it's why do we get fat, you know, is it insulin, is it carbohydrates, you know, and we've covered many of these topics on this on this podcast. But as someone who is firmly entrenched into um, the belief that, that we need to have um, a scientific standpoint, um, an understanding of the scientific process, healthy skepticism and all that, I mean... Where, where do you see the problem in these debates? And we can generalize a bit. Um, is it just people get into this just because they have a belief in something or something's well packaged and marketed um, and just appeals to people? Or 
you know, it, because it seems to me there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people that debate this scientifically, obviously, but there's a lot more people that debate it using some other criteria. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the main criteria that people base their stances on is what worked for them personally. Mm. And so people are coming largely from a position of personal anecdote. And what typically happens is somebody will experience a certain thing or a certain result with a particular diet and they'll have an epiphany of sorts and then they become emotionally attached to the paradigm and it becomes their whole brand so to speak and in order to be scientific it, you have to fight really hard against the tendency and the temptation to adopt a, an unshakable belief system so that's just one of the things that I personally try to do uh, with the whole diet thing I mean I eat the way I eat and my diet is what it is but that is, has nothing to do with science per se Mm. That's mm. just the way that I operate. <laughs> sure. So uh, it's it's definitely a, a personal case study, which isn't worthless, but it can't be used um, in the context of discussing objective science. So, you know, I know you, you've published... Um I mean, you seem to be publishing a lot in the, in the uh, you know, peer-reviewed literature, uh, which is great. You... you uh, You've been giving me a lot to read lately, which is great. <laughs> um, yeah. But also, um, you and Lou Schuler have brought out a new book, uh, The Lean Muscle Diet. Now, I don't normally go for these sorts of books. And the reason why I don't normally go for these sorts of books is it's written by people that really don't have any credentials worthy of professing expertise. It, it, it's often marketed... Um, you know, sort of in a sensationalist way, and oh, they just drive me nuts. But you know, I'm not like I don't get, I'm not getting paid for any of this stuff. So I'm, I'm just saying it because I think it's worth the respect. I, I bought a copy of your book. You should, I should have gotten a free one, damn it. But um, I, <laughs> I didn't think about that one. But uh, I can afford, I can afford a copy, so I did. Um, so it's totally unbiased. I didn't even get a review copy. And and what I liked about the book was um, a few things that I wanted to, wanted to talk to you about today, which is, um, you know, that there are things that we know, and there's things that makes a diet work. There's things that make exercise work. And then there's all the things sort of in those grey areas that, frankly, we don't really need to be focusing on because if you master the basics, which is a story you keep telling, kind of, that kind of takes care of most of what we need to be doing. But we, but we spend so much time worrying about the rocket science, the mess, the, and all those arguments that, hence, you're getting into a debate with is over a topic that is probably not... not we don't even really need to go there necessarily if you focus on, on these, these basic issues. So, firstly, I mean, why, why did you want to put this book together? Okay, so we just got cut off back there. So what I was just asking was, you know, what was the um, sort of the main premise behind uh, putting this book together? Well, this was Lou's idea, and he was seeing that in the, amongst the popular diet books, 
almost every one of them has some sort of distinguishable hook or catch, some sort of gimmick that is, you know, designed to reel people in and, and be really memorable and really special as if uh, the Holy Grail was found regarding uh, weight loss and achieving uh, your goal body composition. So there was a, a pretty huge void in the um, in the mainstream pop diet book book list, so to speak, uh, as far as some sort of science-based set of uh, guidelines or information as far as that kind of thing goes. So naturally he wanted to sort of fill that void and provide readers with something that makes sense and something that isn't based on a whole lot of speculation and fairy tales and imagination and such. And I think this was a great thing because I wrote my first book, Girth Control, back in 2006. And yeah, I've got, a, I've got a copy right. I've got a copy right here. I've got a <laughs> awesome. copy right here. See, there you go. <laughs> I'm only See, a weird. Is, uh, I'm a weird fan, Alan. <laughs> man, I, I really appreciate that. It, that shows that you are indeed hardcore. I bought the only copy you sold. <laughs> I'm so yeah, happy it was you bought me. That, that one copy that I sold. Oh, thank you so much, man. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that thing, that thing was uh, written in 2006, released in 2007, and here we are sitting eight years later, and it was long overdue for me to, to get involved with something to put out to the masses that would bring a sort of a, a scientific approach to to dieting kind of bring it to light everything else not everything there's a scant minority of diet books out there that are kind of lurking underground that are that are really good um you know tom, tom venuto's uh, book for example Lyle mcdonald's books uh but uh you know as far as the big publishing houses go i think maybe only possibly tom venuto has something good out there as far as uh diet books go so we kind of jumped on this, and we agreed to the the title, which Lou doesn't mind. I still think it's a funny title, but hey, you know the the point of the title is to get people's attention, and this certainly sure. does. Sure. I, I've always uh, subscribed to the idea that if your diet has a name, <laughs> if the diet you're on has a name, then it's a fad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well I got to drop like that one books. now because yeah. now I got a book. That is the X diet, you know, the lean muscle diet, uh, but it's the opposite of a faddish type of diet plan that requires you to stick to certain special rules or avoid special foods or, uh, you know, restrict yourself to any certain list of special foods in order to hit your goals. So that's that's kind of the deal with our book. Yeah, and that I mean, you know, to be honest, the. You, people will rarely hear anything remotely commercial um, on this podcast because I don't want this podcast to be commercial in any way and I'm not going to promote books and so on. It's just that I think that it's so unusual for books to be out there in the mainstream that do seem to have a strong foundation in in good, solid, you know, not just science, because people tend to throw that word science too much into these things, but... You know, there are some fundamentally important things here that, um, well, I mean, we could, we could discuss them, I guess. Um, I mean, 
you know, there's a few sort of sections in this book. I think uh, I guess it's all Lou's fault. Um, the, 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 you can tell that someone's very creatively uh, titled some of the, the chapters, but they're they're well they're well stated because it is those sort of sound bites that grab your attention. Um, yeah. So you know, what if everything you've been told is true? So what yeah. if everything you've been told is true, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> It means that there's nothing new or special under the sun as far as what it takes to lose body weight and body fat. Yeah. There's no special secret or, or special breakthrough that we still have to wait upon in order to achieve the goal of, of weight loss or fat loss uh, and or muscle gain. It's the the information is out there the research has been done and this is a very unsexy kind of conclusion to arrive at it's, it's not it doesn't necessarily get people excited about hearing something groundbreaking from the oracle but that is what it is and and our job was to kind of take the existing research and convey the convey the data in a way that people can understand and use and it was really a privilege to be working with Lou on this because he was able to organize the book in such a way that uh, makes it palatable for the readership so I yeah I think it I mean that that's an interesting statement though what if everything you've been told is true and it it is kinda it's kind of a well put together statement because actually why is it that we ignore something so fundamentally simple as it's an energy balance issue. Now, of course, you know, I've explored this a lot in different podcasts. I had Stephen Guinay on a few weeks ago now um, where we talked about the neurobiology of this. And, of course, there are things that drive the desire to eat and the desire not to eat. And, and I, you know, unless you're a rat in a cage and, you know, things are very specifically controlled. I, I realize that living in the free living world is not quite a simple thing. But fundamentally, at the most basic and the most significant concept in this issue is it's going to be an energy balance issue, right? Yeah, that's correct. And there is a myriad of factors influencing that balance. And there's no denying that. And there's no denying that it is more a matter of how do you sustain weight loss rather than how do you actually cause it to happen. That's that's the challenge is keeping the weight off. And but the, the flat denial of what it takes to get there, I think it stems from people not necessarily wanting to suffer through eating less than they're used to. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, or uh, doing more exercise than, than they're comfortable with. Sure. And, and or a combination of the two. So um, sustaining new habits is really the challenge. And those habits have to be sustainable in order for the whole thing to work out. So um, that's kind of a, the angle that, that I would come from as far as how, how can people deny the, the whole energy balance equation. Well, they deny it because they aren't aware of or they're, or they're just dismissing all the moving parts involved. And they're 
not necessarily uh, aware of what it takes to create a sustainable program. Mm. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're really quite easily led, aren't we, as a species? And, you know, I don't want to use the sheep analogy, but there's plenty, plenty of shepherds out there, you know, whatever you want to call them, gurus or whatever. But it, it you know, I, I think despite countless decades of, really solid studies that show yeah there are fine-tuning issues to this whether you know and then you go down into the carbs or fats or whatever debate and yes there are definite benefits to protein and so on but at the end of the day it's it's going to boil down to to, uh, to energy balance and yet despite all of that someone can come up and say I think you should um, have um, uh, a yak or a sheep um, excrete some of its um, uh, creamy milky butter into someone's coffee and all of a sudden that's the ultimate solution to uh, to fat loss and you know but maybe there's a lesson to be learned there in that we have to learn to dress up the science um, because it's just information at the end of the day right why 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 are we failing you know if these guys are coming up with total BS but making it sound cool. Why can't we take the facts and make it sound cool? I mean, it's just a thought that comes to mind. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what you think about that. Well, I agree with you. That's that's the huge challenge. And for somebody to latch on to the idea that, for example, putting a, you know a, a half a stick of butter in his coffee is making him burn fat... Um, uh, I, I think that it, it would help to educate that person on saying that, well, you found something that you enjoy, mm. and uh, therefore you're able to have that, uh, let's say, four to 600 calorie cup of coffee sustain you from morning and, until dinner, whereas other folks might be overeating the shit out of their breakfast and lunch, and then by the time they head into dinner, they're already 1,500 calories ahead of the guy who just ate, you know, who just consumed his five, six hundred calorie cup of coffee heading into dinner. And so for people to understand that and then understand the potential consequences of having such a low quality day's eating, uh, depending on what they have actually for dinner, then you can start beginning to talk about uh, long-term health impacts and not just what it takes to either lose weight or, or lose body fat. And then I think, it once again, it goes back to if somebody enjoys buttered coffee, then heck, they're enjoying that, and you've created kind of a sustainable habit. And that's why, that's why really any, any sort of plan would work with somebody if they can, A, not hate it, and even better so if B, they can actually enjoy it. So I think for a subset of the population, stuff like buttered coffee taking them through the day is going to work great because it's kind of a sustainable thing that they, for for reasons you know beyond me, would, would actually <laughs> enjoy. And, uh, and, and then I think the third prong of, that, of this whole thing is kind of attacking the pseudoscience behind these sort of uh, uh, behind these ideas that get propagated um, through the 
through the mass media, like for example, putting uh, MCT oil in, in on top of the butter in your coffee or in your various foods and, and whatnot. It's just um, you know you're, you're kind of crossing the line between getting people to enjoy something versus teaching them false information that ends up making them waste their resources at best and at worst, uh, negatively impacting blood lipids and possibly over the long term negatively impacting um, their health. So, so yeah, it, it's it's a complicated thing. And but I, I totally agree with you that we science types need to get better at conveying the message, and we need to get better at reaching the the lay masses in the way that marketing and gimmick oriented people do without being gimmicky so that is a huge challenge totally agree yeah and that yeah. is that is you know and that i mean that's why i put this po- podcast together because i've recognized that you know for, i mean some of us are publishing in open access journals um which is fantastic but a lot of scientists will only publish to journals they feel have the highest impact factor and blah 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 but of course that might be good for their career their you know adding up their their quota of um of targets for publications in highly rated journals whatever it takes for them to you know improve their academic careers and so on this is absolutely you know highly commendable it's in, you know, I, I've published work as well, and I know how damn difficult it is to do that stuff. So my hat goes off to them. Problem is, is the general masses never read that stuff. They don't even get close to being accessible to it. So things like this podcast uh, and this book that you guys have brought out, you know, is is kind of the only way that we can we can really do this. And I I think that that is perhaps something where we need to start to learn to wear more than one hat and I've seen a I've seen more people do that like um, like uh, you obviously uh, Brad Schoenfeld uh, Lane Norton uh, just to quote some of the people um, that I know and that have been on this podcast do kind of wear those two hats and um, you know I don't think anyone's necessarily claiming to be the ultimate scientist or the ultimate um, you know PR guru but that you guys are a good combination of, of both of those. And thanks to that, the, the information does come out. Um, whether or not it's significant in the ocean of BS that's out there is a difficult one. But I, I think the general public aren't so silly or stupid to not recognize that when they see it. Um, so, um, you know, on this sort of idea of what makes a diet work from a practical perspective what do you feel is you know from 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 someone trying to implement this stuff what was the most important components to what makes a diet work from a as, as i mentioned from an applied perspective not not necessarily just all the science but yes yeah what makes a diet work primarily is basing it on the foods that you not just can put up with but actually really love and there's a section in the book that lists a whole truckload of of foods across and within food groups and that's sort of one of the surprise bits of feedback that I've gotten about the book that people actually really like the food list section because it 
kind of opened their mind to ver- the various foods that they've been kind of neglecting and just sort of been stuck in their rut. Uh, so, so yeah, that that's foundational element number one of what makes a diet work is actually looking forward to your meals. And that is entirely possible for anybody to accomplish, even with foods that aren't flat out junk. So, and, and even it, with the junk element, that can be moderated. And there's a, a, an art and a science to moderating um, junk intake. And there's also research showing that uh, people who have a flexible approach to dieting have greater success and less problems um, than folks who take a rigid all-or-nothing type of approach. So element one, you gotta, you got to eat the foods you love. Uh, element number two, you've got to be flexible. And maybe the third element of what makes a diet work is... Well, this is kind of a toughie, but <clears throat> the rate of progress has to be individualized to the person as well as the situation. So if somebody wants to make lifestyle changes and somebody wants to just kind of go for a, a long-term overhaul, then the diet cannot be necessarily so aggressive that it puts the person at risk of bailing out from it. Uh, there are instances and there are cases where rapid initial weight loss is warranted. But this book is mainly speaking to folks who, uh, who want to make long-term changes and are not necessarily in, in the market to crash it off initially for a particular event or, or you know, reunion or, or situation like that. It's a bit more of a moderate, long-term type of approach. So hopefully I kind of answered the question. Yeah, no, you did. I, I, you know, I, I, I like to tell people, look, whatever you've been told, whatever you heard, just like on our devices, our computers and so on, probably the best thing is to press reset. Just press reset. Forget, forget all that stuff. Just, just focus on the basics and what we do know, and we've discussed some of these things now. Um, and it's amazing how much effect those just those basic things can have. And like you say, consistency, and we all know that, don't we? I mean, you maybe you can tell us. I mean, it, it you know, it, all the research that's out there. The one thing that really stands out it's basically whatever you do consistently, right? Absolutely, and. That's kind of the beauty of not having a gimmick or not having a set way that people need to eat in order to succeed. Some people may be eating six meals a day. Some people may be eating three meals a day. Some people may be front-loading their carbohydrates. Some people may be back-loading their carbohydrates. Some people may be spreading their carbohydrate evenly across all their meals. All of it works. The one that works best is the one that you have a personal preference for because that's what you will adhere to and sustain in the long term. I've, I've seen diets set up where there's so many rules to the diet like you have to separate your carbs from your fats and you can't have meals within four hours of each other and you, you, know, you can't have this, can't have that, you have to position this that way and this that way. and it defaults the dieter into 
eating less overall, mm. but it also puts them in a state of psychological stress and misery over their over their diet, and then they last about a few weeks at most. And so, like you said, what needs to be focused on is what really counts, which is totals by the end of the day, uh, over the course of over a course of meals that are not a crappy diet. I mean, diet quality obviously matters, um, and just making sure that that gets done day in and day out to the enjoyment of the person on the diet. So. So yeah, yeah. I'd, it's funny. I've, I've I've been very lucky through my both my work um, um, as a lecturer, but also in my private practice, but also like throughout this podcast to speak to just incredible people. And it you know it's interesting when you have these discussions. But despite all of the PhDs and professors and and so on, they all do tend to agree with one thing, and that is is we kind of don't really know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that's that's actually one of the things that blows me away the most is for years I'd felt that we kind of knew or, you know, we knew what the perfect diet was. We, we you know, we, we know that we all have to eat, um, you know five to ten servings of vegetables a day we've we've all we've all got to exercise we all mustn't smoke but actually when you when you learn about the issues with statistics and epidemiology and all that stuff and bearing in mind things like you know Winston Churchill died at 93 the guy was obese smoked like a chimney didn't (laughs) do any exercise drank like a fish I probably didn't eat any vegetables and such. Do you know what I mean? It's stuff, you know. <laughs> I mean, there, there are all those things, you know. And you all, the thing I love the most is those interviews with people that are that are hundred and something, um, and they always ask them, "What was your secret to longevity?" And usually they'll say, "You know, I drank a bottle of whiskey from." You know, from 19 to 95, I only I, I, I cut back two packs a day to one pack a day by the, when I was 94. Or you know, they, they, no one ever says that they were doing squats and deadlifts every day and high intensity interval training and um, you know doing detox every at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I mean, I think we know we know a lot more about body composition. I think um, I think that we yes. can be more certain about that, but. I think it's dangerous to correlate or, or combine what we know about is a good diet for body composition and what is a good diet for longevity and health. And often they try and put them together because people say it's a healthy diet. Or I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get healthy and lose weight at the same time. I mean, how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is a huge question and it's... It's like you said. It's the one that is perpetual because we're we're trying to find out what what the ideal diet is, and maybe the answer to that is the ideal diet. It, it's it has it just has to be highly individualized. There are certain things that are universal, like for example, uh, a diet should consist predominantly of whole and minimally refined foods if the if the focus is optimizing health and longevity mm. 
Now the composition and the choices and the macronutrient breakdown of the, of that diet that's composed predominantly of whole and minimally refined foods, that's where the the debates come in. That's where the disagreement come in. And uh, I I think that there is a massive amount of variation uh, possible for in quotes optimizing a diet, and that is the thing that. That's the thing that people don't like to hear because it's not a, a nice, straight, kind of cookie-cuttable answer that you have to, your diet has to consi- consist of X percentage of, of fats and X percentage of carbs and X percentage of protein um, with this set of foods in order for you to live to 95 without getting dementia and the metabolic syndrome. You know, I, I, I think that people tend to give a little bit too much credit to diet in and of itself Mm. in the longevity question when diet is a very potentially small slice of the pie uh, of of health where other parts of the pie like oh your your social life your family life your friends your stress levels uh, your your flow, your degree of, or a rate of self-actualization and your sense of self-worth and those sort of things can be tremendous in the, in the longevity question. And here's diet, a small piece of the pie, we're kind of uh, ascribing it a, a bigger capacity or responsibility than it actually has. So, but it, it's, it's an interesting slice of the pie though, isn't it? It is, and they—I mean, of course—it all feeds back to itself because, of course, you know, if, if you if you're unhappy, it affects your eating behavior. If you're not sleeping right, it affects your, you know, leptin and ghrelin and all that, so it affects your eating behavior. I mean, it all, yeah. I, it's just I—I I think particularly when you're working with people who are very focused on body composition, um, physique athletes, bodybuilders, they. They, they have this extremely hyper-focused view about, you know, counting their macros and calories and so on. And I think they get a bit lost with it all, you know, and it becomes kind of a sort of eating disorder, really. Um, you know, and for some people that's important because that's how they make their career. But frankly, most people don't make really much money out of that sort of thing and and um it becomes some sort of ideal and i mean my group of uh, we've just pub well we've just submitted for publication i can't say which journal yet but a whole case study all about this stuff uh and how you don't need um to go down the crazy path in order to achieve this stuff you know and um i'll let folks read about that when it happens but um, let, let's get back uh, to the point then um, of this yeah. sort of general idea of, of what makes a diet work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what what about the numbers? Um, yes. People, you do, I mean, it is really popular for people to have their apps on their phones or whatever and they're counting their calories, they're, huh. um, you know, even weighing their foods and, you know, I have issues with that because I, I in my lab, um, which I'm talking to you from now, from you now actually. You know, I, we do RMRs and all that stuff, and it's really interesting to see how different someone's actual RMR is from their predicted RMR. And then you think, right, well, there's that level of 
sort of inaccuracy and then you know is is the energy content or nutritional value of that food the, you know the same in the app as it is with the food they're actually eating but but then the other argument is you need something to guide you um, I mean how how important do you feel those numbers are I'm glad that you're asking that question because I share with you the concern for people who are counting everything down to the gram and there are certain subpopulations in, in the fitness sphere for whom that can be beneficial or at least not harmful. But for the vast majority of folks, I think that there's a lot of people fostering <laughs> some sort of form of an eating disorder when you get that micromanagey mm. over your macros. Mm. Uh, I was academically or at least in the in the undergrad part of my career I was raised up in the curriculum that that di dietitians were were groomed in and so that was all about getting a general education of of portions and what what portion sizes constitute what and and so there you, at the very very at the very micro-managing view, you've got grams of carbohydrate, protein, and fat. And when you pan backward from that, you get essentially chunks of food that make up that protein, carbohydrate, and fat anyway. So you can either track your protein, carbohydrate, and fat, or you can track chunks of food or servings of food. Uh, and then panning back from from the that further yet is the idea of okay I have I have a ballpark idea of how many servings of uh, you know let's say meat fruit starch vegetable dairy or whatever it is in, in the course of a day I have an idea of what constitutes my requirements but I can be flexible with that from day to day and listen to my body's cues as far as hunger and fullness goes and in a sense honor those cues a little bit more closely than the program written on paper. So while being, having an awareness of your macronutrient targets, I think that's very important and I think that's a very useful tool for a lot of folks who have no clue what it is they're trying to do uh, as far as either you know changing body composition in one direction or another, gaining or losing um, uh, fat or gaining or gaining muscle, I think that the macro template is important for awareness. But I think that it's something that for most people that should be graduated away from, and I think that people should have an idea uh, a bit more of a. <laughs> macro idea, if you will, yeah. of of what their requirements are, and it doesn't have to be the same day to day. I mean, people people have different energy outputs day to day. So why stick with the exact? Why think you have to stick with the exact same thing down to the gram every day when your uh, spontaneous movement may differ day to day, uh, your non exercise activity? expenditure uh, may differ day to day and you know even like you said um, there are objective ways of measuring energy out RMR etc um, 
people have to look at macro a, a macro breakdown as a starting point yeah. from which to yeah. adjust. And in my opinion, I don't think that the general public should should be micromanaging as hard as some folks do. I mean, apps for macros, it motivates some people, and I'm not going to knock that. But I would encourage folks to kind of take a step back and use a bit more of a ballpark approach, um, especially when they ha already have an idea of, of, what, of what is working for them as far as portions go. Yeah, no, I, I, you, you, you put that very well and mirrored my exact feelings about that. Well, look, we've, um, we've been blabbing around forever here with no particular structure, and uh, we kind of already got to the end. So um, there's, there's two facts here. Number one is uh, people are going to want to find out more about your, um, your thoughts about this in, uh, in, your, in your book. Um, I, I, uh, you know, and you, you can just find that. Um, the Lean Muscle Diet, Customized Nutrition Workout Plan, well worth a read. Um, I encourage people even more to read your, um, your, uh, your science papers, which are very good, um, which are, uh, I think they're all open access. Uh, there's a load in JISSN and a few others elsewhere, I believe. Um, yeah, most of them are open access. Yeah, most some, of them are. Yeah, some really good reviews, um, um, which... Um, which I use with my students, uh, so they're, they're great. Um, but obviously, people can see you in action um, against, uh, well, not against, with, because like you said, um, I've had Gary on this podcast, and he was a very affable fellow. We had a good chat. He, you know, he's got his reasons for how he, you know, for what he thinks, and I'm looking forward to hearing you both present why you both have your perspectives um, at the Epic Fitness Summit in May. And, of yeah. course, people can learn more about that at epic-summit.co.uk. Um, yeah. And, obviously, people can find out more about you at your website. And, of course, your excellent um, Alan Aragon's research review, which, uh, which, again, is at what website? That You can just go to either alanaragon.com and look at the top menu and there'll be a link to the research review or you can go straight to um, another web address alanaragonblog.com slash a-a-r-r and that'll take you to sort of the promo page for the research review and I'm glad I'm glad you're enjoying that, by the way, and I'm glad you're enjoying the other publications. And yeah, well, I, I, the thing I the thing I enjoy the most about your research review, for me personally, a for myself, but also with my students, and I highly recommend this to all the trainers, coaches, and whatnot. It is the it is one of it is one of the most useful tools to teach you how to critique a paper. Now, you don't even have to agree with what you say, but you. It, you know, and usually I would expect the reader to agree with what you're saying. But the point, though, is is you absolutely prove a point that you must read the methods. You must you must look into the paper. You even need to look up some of the references that people use. You know, and yeah. that that stuff is is an art form. And and I would say you've contributed well to the tools that exist out there to, to allow people to understand that stuff in our in our industry. And that will be your legacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Lauren, I, I tend to think you are kind of on an island by yourself getting getting uh, 
as excited as you do over research, but <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like my, as, as my wife says, it. Alan, you need to get out more, Laurel. <laughs> you know, the only way I've got no friends at all. The only thing I do is get people onto this podcast, and that's how I spend my time. <laughs> hey, so there you, you know, go. But whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. It does. It does. Listen, um, as usual, it's been great to have you. Um, on this podcast I look forward to seeing you in the flesh again um, uh, later this year it's not even that far away um, and I want to I want to put in a little plug real quick yeah. for co-author Lou Schuler. yeah and uh, you can find his other big collection actually of, of books he wrote at louschuler.com L-O-U S oh boy I don't want to screw this up S C H U L E R I think you just need to Google his name you see I, yeah I, I, again here you go look I know folks can only listen to the audio but I'm showing Alan on my uh, my camera I've got one of Lou Schuler's books here the uh, the new rules are lifting another uh, a whole series of those books have come out now and again the the idea there is it's very much about focusing on the basics but um, that's for another podcast maybe I'll get Lou on Lou on and we can talk about um, you know this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Lou will get get you deep into the weeds. Fair. So, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Good. All right, mate. Well, look, um, this is gonna be a long one, so um, I'll sign off right now. And um, and uh, if folks want to learn more about this podcast, they just need to go to guruperformance.com. I'm Laurel Bannock, and look forward to bringing another podcast to you folks very soon.